Perfect. All right. Thank you, Dr. Hickman, for coming today and joining me on uh, our newest episode of Physical Mindset. Uh, for those listening, uh, I have a very special guest, Dr. Hickman. She is a sports psychologist for the Clippers right now, and she just has an abundance of knowledge, and I just can't wait to ask her so many questions and dive in deeper into the uh, the mind of an athlete. So, um, I mean, first things first, this just right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get into, you know, sports psychology? Did you grow up playing sports? Was that a big role in, you know, your decision to be a sports psychologist? Like, walk us through the, uh, the whole process. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me, Ziggy. And I really admire and appreciate this podcast that you've got going and loved listening to some of the former episodes. Um, I also really like your, um, I don't know what you call it on the, the thing where you've got the brain and then the body, you know, of your, um, to represent your, your podcast, because I think that does speak to, you know, the importance of mind, body and and recognizing the holistic athletes. So I really appreciate your efforts to educate about both. Um, so as far as my background, I'm one of six children and my mom insisted that we get out of the house and do sports. She did not want us causing problems, especially in the summer. Too many kids was not enough um, to do. So we were basically mandated to be in everything. I was in tennis, track, ballet, gymnastics, swimming, golf, you name it. Uh, every sport that we could do, we, we signed up for. And gymnastics ended up being kind of gymnastics and tennis, but more gymnastics became the sport that I gravitated to and uh, became immersed in from a very young age. As you probably know, g- gymnasts uh, start young and um, their career often ends by 18, which was uh, my case. Um, and I you know, was immersed in the competitive world of striving for perfectionism, which is not attainable. And in gymnastics back then, uh, dates myself a little bit, but we were judged on a scale of, you know, zero to 10, 10 being perfect and aiming for that 10 score where you did absolutely everything correct. So there was a lot of pressure to be perfect and, and do everything with the utmost diligence and care. It was a very uh, driven and um, intense environment for training. I would spend, you know, three hours in the gym every day and I had to travel to get to my gym. So it was like an hour and a half in the car each way. I would get in three different cars to get to the gym because my parents couldn't take me. So we had like carpools going. And I, um, you know, didn't really have a model for how to deal with the emotional, psychological side of that type of intensity. So I was somebody who, looking back, I'm not proud of in terms of how upset I would get if I lost or had a bad meet or a bad event. I was a really poor sport because I was very competitive and always wanted to, you know, place or be a high achieving, um, athlete. And, you know, it was pretty miserable. I mean, there were certainly highlights and a lot of fun and, and it's, you know, one of those things where you look back and think that taught me a lot, but there was a lot of pain that accompanied it. So I knew from a very young age that I wanted to pursue sports psychology and learn how to teach athletes how to manage their emotions, how to manage their attention and focus, and also 
you know, their psychological space um, because we were just told get over it. If I had a bad, you know, event and I was upset, my coach said, you know, get over it, move on. And that doesn't really work. So, um, yeah, I, I knew that that was something I wanted to pursue. And at the time I didn't have a map for that because there wasn't really programs. There weren't really programs like there are now. So I had to work very hard to get information about sports psychology and, um, you know, kind of how to do that. Yeah, I feel like it's real interesting with even like whoever, you know, whatever career you go into, there's always like a backstory, like why you're in that career. And, you know, being a, you know, you're being a gymnast or being in gymnastics, I can tell that, you know, that's no joke, like comes down to a a T, like how your feet should be placed and all like specific, specific, specifics. And I feel like at a young age, a lot of young kids can't take, well, I don't know if your coach was like this, but can't take like a lot of criticism at that young age and know how to deal with it. And so um, that leads to another one of my questions. Uh, Like does, I guess, too much praise or too much, I guess, like intervening while practicing, does that interfere with like the growth of an athlete? So say for instance, like um, I'm training a kid in basketball and I say, oh, well, keep shooting, keep shooting. Okay, good shot, good shot, good shot, good shot is too much praise um, affect that performance? Because I know there was a study done, um, I think by, yeah, the Columbia University and Claudia Mueller and Carol Duick found that praise kind of hurt child's performances saying like, oh, they, you know, persisted less in their activities or they even showed like less enjoyment and attributed their failure to, to, um, to their lack of ability. So that's kind of my question is too much praise at a young age um, affect, you know, the child's mental capacity or their performance capacity to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating topic and certainly a a broad and deep one (laughs) that has a lot of aspects to it. I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that stands out from my training was if you over reward somebody for something that's already inherently enjoyable, that tends to cause a decrease in enjoyment. So if I'm already really loving what I do and having fun with it, and then you come and just over praise me or over reward me or even overpay me for something that I actually really like, uh, it takes away the enjoyment. So we do want to be mindful about, you know, like you said, from a young age, being able to encourage uh, without necessarily having to over um correct or over praise or over, you know, give feedback. A lot of coaches feel like they have to constantly give feedback and the brain can only handle so much. (laughs) You know, I think one of the, the challenges I found with dealing with different coaches over my career was that there's a huge range in in what they provide for like coaching tips or, you know, feedback to, to an athlete who's learning. Um, and sometimes less is more, right? In terms of like what you provide, but certainly knowing the athlete, who they are, what they respond to, what they believe is positive reinforcement, right? Reinforcement means we're going to increase the desired behavior, um, that that is seen as positive. 
I uh, did work with Navy SEALs for about four or five years. And it was interesting. We would hook them up to HRV monitors in their training. And um, I noticed that if, if I gave positive feedback, you know, during a shooting drill, for example, guys, HRV would, would drop, you know, would, would basically move into a, a negative direction um, where they were uncomfortable and they weren't anticipating that because they don't tend to get a lot of positive reinforcement uh, in their environment. They are told, you know, okay, you've moved on. Uh, and they definitely are told when they screw up, but they are not necessarily given a lot of uh, good job, right? Attaboys or, you know, fantastic. Like they don't, you know, that's not really part of the militaristic culture per se. It, it, they want to do a good job, but they're not necessarily looking for a lot of accolades. Uh, and so each individual has their own background with like how they deal with criticism and how they deal with praise. And some people are uncomfortable with, with both, right? Like they, they're not comfortable with praise and they're not comfortable with criticism or one or the other. So knowing your athlete and knowing what works for them and what they benefit from is, is certainly a huge piece of effective coaching. Yeah, and that leads to another question. Can I just add one more thing about the gymnastics? I'm sorry before I move on, because yeah, I think this is an important piece of, of what gravitate, what you know, contributed to me gravitating towards this field is that it was very dangerous. Like basically every event that I did, I could hurt myself pretty severely, right? Because I was turning upside down on the balance beam or the floor or the bars or the vault. And you can, you know, really damage your neck or your back and you know, I mean, I, I feel like an ex football player with all of the injuries that I've had over my career and the surgeries. So I also want to add that that physical injury and the threat of that, especially if you rely on your body to perform for you or to execute, you know, night after night is certainly a stressor that athletes have to manage and deal with. And that varies in terms of the, the level of difficulty or danger that goes with the sport. Yeah. So basically it, it depends because you said you got more interested in it because of how dangerous it is. Because of how, you know, you get not like a slight edge, but kind of just gave you that anticipation, that kind of like adrenaline rush to, to try for the sport. And so um, my next question was um, going back to like the too much praise. I know you have player confidentiality. You can't say too much about players and stuff like that. But does like a, um, a coaches like the way a, a coach coaches his team like yells too much or is too passive, too aggressive? Can that also infect affect the players uh, in return if he's you know too adamant about getting a play right or if he's just too passive like ah well we can just do shooting today it's okay. Does that in turn affect like the mental capacity of the the athletes? Yeah, I, I definitely think coaches can have a huge influence on their players and their mental space, uh, depending on, again, the player themselves. If they really are looking for approval from a coach, and again, that varies. You know, sometimes a coach becomes a father figure for a player. I'm thinking of male athletes and uh, specifically with the, the male teams I work with. Um, and the, the coach becomes kind of a surrogate father and someone they look up to someone they admire, someone they respect and, and really want to be respected. So if they let a coach down or they feel like they failed or, you know, didn't come through for him, that certainly can, you know, affect their psychological space. 
other players are, are, you know, less interested in that relationship. They're just more interested in technical, tactical feedback of like, make me better. You know, I just, I want to improve. I want to, you know, uh, advance my game. And if they get that from a coach, then they're happy. But I think, um, again, this is, you know, comes down to coaches being able to know who's in your locker room, know who's kind of uh, on your roster and what works for each of them. What are they looking for? What do they need? And being able to adapt a little bit. I was just looking through my notes from uh, this conference I went to in Italy, International Sports Psychology Conference. And one of the quotes was, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. And so once you draft a player, right, like you've decided this is, this is our guy, then the, the organization and, and I think the team does want to kind of adjust to make the best for what we've got, right, as, as far as their attributes, their strengths, and being able to, to work with that. Um, one of the things I do find helpful is do a learning style assessment with each player and figure out how they learn best. You know, some learn uh, by doing, some learn by listening, some learn by watching, and really even knowing that aspect of what connects with their brain and how do I help get information through where it's like clicking and I feel good about, you know, my ability to catch on to plays and learn what we need to do differently here at this team because um, players, you know, move around and they've got to adjust to that system, but being also able to kind of uh, tailor things to their learning style can help. So what's like a typical day then for you? I know you can only say so much, but um, like from morning to, you know, the last guy that leaves the gym or even if it's just, you know, you only see the players a certain amount of times throughout the week or when necessary, do you travel with the team? Like what does the overall typical day look like for you? Yeah, I mean, each team that I've worked with has been a little different in terms of, um, you know, what works for them and, and the, you know, the needs of the team. And sometimes that changes throughout the season. Um, but generally speaking, as a team psychologist, I want to be available, but not like in their face too much, right? Like you do want to give players and coaches some space where you're just not always there and like always just kind of waiting or hoping that, you know, uh, you can be of value, but it's more of building those relationships, spending time, being at practice, kind of knowing the, the, flow and demands that are going on throughout the course of a season, being available for players if they want to sit down with you, um, making sure that you connect with new players when they come in and that you're, you know, establishing kind of your role and what you can offer. A lot of uh, the psychological space is still education about what it is that I can do or what I can provide you know, there's still kind of a stigma attached with the mental health side of what I do. And as a clinical sports psychologist, I really provide the range of services from, you know, a mental performance coaching session to, you know, a clinical session where somebody is, is really struggling with either anxiety or depression or trauma. Um, definitely helping the injured athletes. You know, that's something that I regularly try to check in with guys who are sidelined and, um, you know, not able to perform and play their craft and do what they love to do. Um, or they're, you know, trying to get a contract and there's stress about that. And, um, 
I think being available to front office, to performance staff, you know, being able to just kind of be a, a listening ear if there's something that's going on that's challenging for, you know, the trainer or one of the coaches. Um, and yeah, being available to travel uh, if there's like an extended road trip or, um, you know, a training camp. I definitely like to be at training camp because that kind of sets the tone for the season and you know, everyone's kind of there and all hands on deck and, you know, you're starting off with, you know, kind of more intense, longer days and, you know, just kind of being around because you just don't really know what might happen. Um, but trying to set some type of a regular presence and availability and, you know, for guys to know that they can text me or call me, uh, we do virtual sessions now, obviously, since the pandemic, it's much more normalized. I've done that for years, but, you know, now it's kind of a normal thing. Um, so to your, answer your question, there's no typical day, um, uh, especially I would say in the NBA, it changes a lot more than the NFL. Um, NFL's more structured. There's more guys, you know, you, you have kind of a, a routine that's, you know, kind of normal, but the NBA, they, they try to go more by the feel of, you know, how the season's going and, um, the tempo and, and the demands on the players are much greater physically as far as like number of games. So I think there's, there's more flexibility as it relates to each individual player and also the team activities. Mm -hmm. And, um, follow up with that. I know, you know, um, talking to players after injury or they're trying to get a contract to play with the team. Like, have you ever dealt with somebody that, you know, is probably obviously coming back from injury, but is trying to get a contract with a team, that mental capacity, like that mental, you know, um, not stigma, but just what they're going through, you know, coming back from an ACL injury, like, oh, okay, I just started the season. I turned my ACL out for a season. Like, am I going to play to what I did before or am I going to play worse? Like, what are your steps to kind of, I guess, counteract those negative thoughts where, you know, because we see a lot of times when people have like serious injuries in the NBA, they come back, you know, not as optimal as they were before. Like you can see that their first step is slower or, you know, their demeanor is just different from before. So um, I guess, yeah, what, what are some steps that kind of help, help counteract that negative, uh, negative thinking? Yeah, I mean, I worked with the Brooklyn Nets as well. And I, I remember I had one player who, um, came back from a pretty serious injury and there certainly is doubt, you know, and, and kind of some anxiety and fear of, is my body going to hold up? And certainly there's always a fear of, you know, financial impact of like, is this going to affect my stability, my, my livelihood, you know, my career. And I think, uh, we had to go back to the basics, right. Of like really being able to just let him, go back to just starting with the basics and being able to not think so far ahead, because if you try to process all of that at once, of course, it's just going to create um, a huge wave of insecurity and, and fear and uh, practicing mindfulness of just being in this moment right now, you know, where you are and being able to just kind of get that feel back and have some patience because <laughs> athletes, you know, they want it now. Like they're like, okay, let's go already. Right. That's one of the things that gets them where they are so successful because they're high achievers and they push the envelope and they're, you know, driven 
and uh, they do more, but sometimes you have to do less and you have to slow down and you've got to be patient with yourself and your body. And that's like a different mental gear that they're not used to um, putting their brain into, right? Like in a stick shift car, it's like, okay, you know, um, how do I move it into this gear of like having some patience with myself and taking it as it comes and, you know, being able to have, set small goals. So we work on small goal setting because you want to be able to feel good about your accomplishments. And as you work your way back and you also want to work on your mind space of what, how are you talking to yourself? What are you saying? If the best coach in the world was standing next to you right now, what would he say to you? And I remember one of the phrases that stood out, which is I know how to play right? Just because he injured his body doesn't mean he forgot everything about basketball. He knows how to play and really reminding himself of that, you know, all those years he's put in all that time and training didn't just disappear. And his knowledge of, of the court and the, you know, the game and what he needs to do is still there. So being able to play smarter and really be mindful of recognizing limits and, and, respecting those as an athlete comes back will help them give the best chance of returning back to full speed. If they rush it, if they push it, if they're frustrated, um, if they're guarding, you know, a lot of times the body goes into guarding mode because you don't want that to happen again, especially if it was really traumatic injury and season ending or possibly career ending. I mean, this athlete was told he may never play basketball again after the injury. So um, this is, you know, something that sit, like seeps into the brain and like you, it can grow if you really water it and give it attention as opposed to, okay, I'm here now and uh, I feel pretty good. So let's, you know, let's kind of go and, and release some of that fear. So working on relaxation, breathing, you know, teaching an athlete really how to get into a, a place of comfort and a comfortable feeling in their body because injuries come with pain and discomfort and yeah. So do you follow uh, SMART goals? Because I know I took a um, psychology, sports psychology class back in college. And um, the teacher went over a uh, SMART goal. So it was specific, measurable, um, attainable, reachable. Mm -hmm. and Attainable timely. or achievable, yeah. Yeah, and then um, timely. So it, it, does that play a factor when you, you know, talk to players or it's just different from each one? Or do Don't you forget the R, realistic. Oh, realistic, so, for the West. Yeah, because yeah. I, I was thinking reachable, but attainable and reachable is like the same thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we try to do, you know, it's interesting because with goal setting comes psychoeducation about what that means. Cause so often, you know, clients or athletes will come in and say, I just want to be happier. Right. Or I just want to, you know, like have a great year. I want to win. Well, you're on a team sport. Like how can you set the goal of winning? Right. And I get it. They want to win. If the team sets a goal of winning, that's one thing. But as an individual on a team sport, you can contribute to the winning. So how are we going to measure that? And what are we going to set, you know, your goal for? I actually wish athletes set goals for every practice 
I mean, there's a lot of research that shows intentional, deliberate practice is what advances progress in someone's skill level. It isn't just hours, right? For a while, we thought it's like 10,000 hours and that's what makes you an expert at something. But a deeper dive showed that, no, it's more about intentional, deliberate. Am I going to really work on this specific skill? And that includes mental, right? So can you set a goal of, you know, I'm going to keep my arousal level in that sweet spot for at least 50% of practice today? I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to work on my reset button when I make a mistake that I'm going to take a deep breath and let it go and, and flush it and, you know, next up, right? Because those things are going to come into play during a game and during important games. But if you're not including that as a goal to work on in practice, it's really hard to make it, you know, a habit in under pressure. Keep it going. Yeah. And it's funny that you said arousal because my next question was um, the eyes off, the individual zones of, of functioning. And um, I first heard about it in that same class and uh, I could attest to it because sometimes I thought, you know, listening to, you know, hardcore, like I like rap. So I would listen to, you know, hard beats, hard rock, um, rap music to get me going for it before a basketball game or before a pickup game or whatever. And I noticed that I just wouldn't play like as good as I thought. And then um, I will listen to like R&B or like slower music. And then I was able to like, you know, play better. And I thought it was so weird because I thought, you know, most of the time you just got to go, 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 go. But um, it's funny that you said arousal because, you know, you can have like a high arousal and some people like that and they can function, you know, in the game well, or they can have like a low arousal. They don't need like as much Um, because I know in the past you worked with the New York Jets as well. And um, I figured, you know, if you're a lineman, you know, listening to heavy rock or like heavy music is, is good because, you know, you're, you're doing a, a lot during the game. You're blocking, you know, whatever. Um, but for a QB, QB might be a little bit slower because he has to process the field. He has to know, you know, who the raw receiver with which gaps is open and stuff like that. So um, can you speak a little bit about like that, that eyes off method? Like, why is it that some people need like a low arousal? Why is it that some people need high arousal? Is it specific to sports like football, high arousal all the time? Or does it depend on, you know, the individual person? Yeah. So, I mean, you're referring to Yuri Hannon's work, right? With the inverted U-curve and um, this concept that we, for a long time, especially for intense sports thoughts, the higher the arousal, the better. And then research basically show that there's a diminishing returns at some point. And it really does depend on the activity that you're doing. You know, if it's highly cerebral versus highly physical, if you're in, you know, a golf match, for example, you know, golf tournament and you're putting, <laughs> we don't need, you know, a high arousal. If you're doing max bench press, you're probably okay. Right. So we want to understand and respect the difference of the context. If you're about to run out the field for a Super Bowl game, I guarantee that arousal levels are already going to be, whoa, way over there on the right. And so we definitely need to work harder to dial down to get it into that zone of, you know, I like to think of three types of playlists, like the pump up playlist, like your, your rap, the chill out playlist, right? 
But then there's the zone playlist where, you know, that music that's like both energizing and relaxing. It's like got a good beat, but it's also like, you know, calming and soothing, but energy, like you feel like you could just listen, you know, like move in a way that feels powerful and smooth. And so I think you, you want to think about like, okay, what is the environment and what is the demands on me? If it's a pickup game and there's not a lot at stake, I'm probably going to need some, some music to kind of amp me up a little bit. Cause you know, I'm on that lower edge of, of arousal, but if it's a very important, you know, playoff game and it's at home and everyone's watching and expecting us to win, I really have to work to help my physiology because the physiology is wired for fight or flight for, Oh no, like people are watching me and, you know, they, they did a research. I don't know the name of the researchers. I apologize, but, um, they did a study about people jumping out of planes for the first time. And they saw that the cortisol, the stress hormone went down each time they jumped out of a plane. They, jump the first time the cortisol is really high. The second time they jump, it goes down the third, they get used to it. But when they had ballroom dancers being judged, guess what happened? The cortisol stayed high, no matter how long they've been ballroom dancing, they could be 15 years of experience, expert dancers. But the fact of being watched and judged by other people continues to keep that nervous system on higher alert. So athletes want to appreciate that and understand that that is part of how we're wired as humans, that we care a lot about what people think. And even if we say we don't, there's always a scenario where you don't love embarrassing yourself, right? Or looking bad or letting people down. And fans are a huge part of the professional, you know, sport experience. So we want to learn not only physiology and how to manage that, how to dial it up, dial it down. Music is definitely a legal drug for the brain. It absolutely is something that helps. And it's probably why we've seen so many athletes move to headphones, right? Because for a long time, they would just fight over the music in the locker room. I want country. I want rap. I want, you know, R and B. And for each guy, it was a little different of how they, you know, felt about the music. So now they put on the bows or, you know, uh, and they get in their own zone. They listen to things that are going to help them feel, you know, kind of ready for action. Um, so I spend a lot of time with athletes on the inverted U curve and we will literally draw, you know, the curve out and label it and show like where their zone is. And some athletes are more to the right. You know, they love that like edge, but I don't know anyone who does tremendous at a nine ten, right. Of the scale. And then some athletes really prefer kind of that lower edge of four or five, but even those athletes in a high stakes environment, you know, they're going to have to, to really work to kind of keep that lower. Um, so yes, it's, I think a very useful tool for understanding the physiology and understanding you individually, how you respond to that particular demand on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you touched about it a little bit earlier too, when we were talking, but, um, you said, you know, fans have a lot of, you know, pull during a basketball, during a game or during any, any kind of sporting event. And, you know, 
you have people that are on the sideline, you know, you might airball a free throw and then you're just hearing it from a heckler on the sideline. And I feel like a lot of times too, that you can have like that kind of internal and external anxiety where you can have that internal anxiety of like, oh man, I missed a shot. Like how could I miss it? Or why would I airball a free throw? And you can have that external um, kind of anxiety where you kind of hear from the whole crowd. They got signs up. You have the person talking to you from the side. You got the other team saying like, oh no, he can't shoot. You know, so uh, how does one kind of just, is it the same? Like you just like, got to narrow into the present moment or is there another way where you can just drown out all the noise? Because we can see a lot of times where people get heckled, but they just go off. Like it kind of turns them, you know, ramps them up a little bit, just like Michael Jordan. You know, if you, you know, talk slick to Michael Jordan, he's going to drop 50. And so, you know, how some players have that kind of, I guess, turn on and some people just turn off. Um, how does one kind of just, you know, use that, you know, external anxiety or external factors to kind of propel them to move forward? And why do some players just like drop to the wayside? Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is, you know, really the importance of training attention and where our attention is when we're competing or performing. And a lot of times it can be pulled to a place it doesn't need to be or isn't going to be helpful for my best performance, meaning, you know, the external, as you said, there's internal attention, what we think about in our head, there's external, what's going on around us. And then there's broad and narrow, right? Being able to really focus or look at the big picture. And we need an athlete or even for ourselves in everyday life, we need to be able to shift and change channel of where our focus and attention is. And that takes training. I mean, if you think about just driving on the freeway, right, and how frustrated you can get by other drivers, if your focus is on the guy who cuts you off and the idiot who's driving, you know, too slow and, you know, this guy who doesn't see, he seems to be on his phone, that is certainly going to cause a lot of frustration as opposed to just focusing on keeping your car, you know, safely in the lane and, and kind of going where, where you need to go. Same with an athlete at the free throw line, where is their focus? and attention. And certainly, um, without training, the brain is going to go to anything that's a threat, right? That it's perceived as a threat, meaning that we are constantly looking for anything that could be a potential danger to ourselves. And yeah, someone screaming our name or saying bad things about your mother or your family, or, you know, they know how to push the buttons, right? Those fans get pretty good at, um, creating, uh, disruption, right. And malice in the palace. I was obsessed with that situation. And I actually felt that what was asked of Ron Artest was beyond what is humanly possible, right? Like he was just being harassed and harassed and harassed and, you know, having things thrown at him. And so the fans in, in the NBA are very close, right? They're very close to the players and, nobody really likes people in their personal space, right? Like, I mean, generally people have a comfort of how close someone, a stranger, you know, is allowed to be. And athletes are no different. You know, they have a level of comfort with like how close are the things that are happening around them. So I think it's very challenging. Some of the situations that athletes are put in to expect them to just be calm and not react. So practicing those things, right. At, at the jets, they used to, you know, pump in the fan noise and they would be really loud during practice so that the 
quarterback would have to, you know, really practice the cadence and how to do the signals so that they weren't bothered by that if that was happening. And, you know, in the NBA, same thing during practice, you know, being able to create scenarios that put them under time pressure or, you know, someone tries to get in their face or say things so that they aren't surprised by it, that they're not rattled by it, that they feel like, okay, you know, that's part of what goes on, but that's not where my focus is going to be. That's, I think, a huge part of, of training the brain. Yeah, because that was going to lead to my next question. What are some mental trainings that you kind of do with players to help them get to that? Because I know, you know, the facilities might have the the player or the uh, fam noise and stuff like that might do like in-game situations and everything. But what are some like, I guess, um, individual mental trainings that somebody can do? Do they just close their eyes and like envision themselves like shooting a free throw and imagine the, the crowd like going wild or someone talking to them? Or what are some other you know, mental trainings that one can do for themselves when they're kind of away from practice and they want to continue um, strengthening their mind. Because, you know, a lot of times player always strengthens like the physical and everything, but the mental, you know, it's kind of hard to train that. Not a lot of people know how to train the mental side of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is where meditation is almost essential for any high performer because meditation is, is essentially teaching you to stay focused on what you choose to stay focused on for that session, whether it's music, like in a sound healing session uh, where they play music and you're just focused on the sounds. Uh, sometimes I have athletes meditate to sound, meaning just observe, like just receive sound vibrations for the next five minutes. And inevitably the brain will wander off and it will start doing something else. It'll think about, you know, making lasagna for dinner and what you did yesterday and right all of the things on your to-do list. And then you go, nope, oh, I got to bring myself back to the task of listening. Uh, sometimes it's a mantra a phrase that you just repeat over and over. And that is where you want your brain to stay. So that practice gives our brain an ability to have that muscle strengthened, uh, focus and attention. And it also helps to calm the brain. So what they found is that meditation provides the brain an ability for all the lobes to be online. Meaning that, you know, when we're doing activities, sometimes we're very cerebral. We're using the frontal lobe. Sometimes we're using the occipital lobes. We're watching stuff. And when we meditate, we, we tend to help the brain use everything at once and allow it to kind of be neutrally balanced, which helps us to be less reactive. So we're getting kind of two bangs for the buck, meaning that we're keeping our focus one place and we're helping our emotional reactivity. So we're less likely to react with frustration and uh, that type of practice, even 10 minutes a day, which seems so easy to do, right? It seems, oh, 10 minutes, how hard could that be? And yet people do not sit and practice being singularly focused. So meditation is one centered focus and attention. It isn't clearing your head. It isn't thinking of nothing. It's choosing one thing to focus on and, and kind of going with that. So committing to that type of practice would definitely be where I'd start. And then being able to adjust the external environment as needed to really create you know, uh, real life scenarios where people are yelling or there's noise or whatever it is that would trigger an athlete to be distracted or frustrated. 
Um, I just had a lacrosse player the other day tell me, you know, she, she really hates getting stuffed, for example, like when they stuff her and, and just, you know, keep her from advancing and okay. So let's, you know, imagine. So to your point, we could visualize that and how she's going to react the next time that happens and being able to play out that, that scene in her head. Yeah, well, I, I'll even take it a step further and say that it's kind of the same thing, even with like just everyday life, just like if it's an interview or if it's, you know, starting it first day on the job. Um, I can attest to that, too, because when I first um, applied to be for the Clippers or first got the interview, I envisioned myself or I visualized like me walking to the, the office, who's going to be at the elevator, you know, if it's going to be even broken down to like, is it going to be a boy or a girl that like takes me up, um, you know, just the questions that they're going to ask, like how I should, you know, talk to people. And I just kind of envisioned myself in that process of me walking through all those steps. And um, I think it is really beneficial when you see yourself, you know, actually going, walking through that routine. And then when it comes to it, it's kind of like, oh, well, I knew it was going to be a girl that took me up in the elevator, or I knew that the office was going to be way in the back and it's going to be, you know, clear windows or whatever the case may be. Um, I feel like it can also help like even everyday life, but I can attest to like the meditation. Um, I took a yoga class and they told me the same thing. Like, okay, I want you to show your eyes um, and then just focus on the sound around you. And it was just so hard for me because like the first five seconds, I just thought about something else. Like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. Okay, let me focus. And then it'll just be the same constant thing over and over again. And I feel like it's so hard to try to stay focused in a short amount of time or a long period of time because the mind just likes to race back and forth no matter what, so. Well, it if left to its own devices, let's put it that way, right? If left to its own devices without guidance, mm-hmm. right? It, that's what it will do. It just knows to go to what's interesting, what's new, what's novel, what's, you know, um, potentially a threat and needs to get attended to. And yeah, and that's, what we have to train it and why when you're a beginner for meditation, it's really helpful to have guided meditation, to have a voice that guides you and to help you kind of stay on that, on that path or in that lane, because again, a novice is, is going to be kind of, Whoa, this is, this is a lot. And I don't, I don't have practice with this. Um, I've done a lot of yoga training and meditation training. I trained under John Kabat-Zinn at UMass Medical in Worcester during my graduate program at UMass. And, um, you know, he just has an incredible, uh, program that he's developed of the mindfulness stress reduction program. And this is way back. I mean, this is 20 years ago that he believed this was critical for health, like health, not just mental health, but overall health. Because the more that we stress and we're in a chronic state of stress, we have higher levels of cortisol, which is not healthy for our system. And we want to try to clear that as much as possible. And the more we can be present in this moment without judgment or criticism and allow space for feelings that come up, you know, we are kind of teaching our system how to be, um, balanced, right? How to be more balanced in the world that tends to be, you know, very pressure filled and and demanding. So yes, meditation is simple, but not easy is what he would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And does self-talk play a role in that too? Because I know there's, um, uh, I think it's Pete Durek, 
sports. Uh, I forgot his last name, but he was the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. And I think he still is. But um, he did an interview and he was saying like self-help can be helpful, but to an extent. And so, you know, if I'm trying to, you know, if I'm Shaq and I say, you know, I'm, a, I'm the best shooter in the world and that self-talk, it's not going to be beneficial because he, you know, obviously he wasn't the best shooter. He was just low post all the time. And so does self-help, can self-help be harmful to an extent? Would you rather like have somebody know what they they need or, or what they want and, and write down what they need to work on to order to help them, you know, be able to self-talk? Or, you know, is being outlandish like, oh, I'm, I have the best handles in the world or, you know, um, I'm the best football player, I'm the best QB. Can that, you know, negatively affect somebody's uh, performance? Well, I always think that athletes should be schooled and skilled in trash talking. I'm actually an advocate of like healthy trash talk, okay. meaning that you've got to have some fun with it and you want to be able to like move into that space mm-hmm. of where you feel on top of the world. And if that's the case, roll with it, like enjoy it. But yes, this is an excellent question and a really important distinction when it comes to at least the foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, thought restructuring. So we take um, negative thoughts and we be, we like tinker with them so that they become more fair and balanced, right? And instead of just Pollyanna, like just be positive because the brain won't believe that. Like you said, if Shaq is not the best free throw shooter, that's an area he struggles. If he just tells himself I'm the best, he's not going to believe it himself because he sees that the shots aren't going in. But if he's able to say, all right, it's something I'm working on and I'm willing and I've got a good attitude and effort with this and I'm going to take it one shot at a time. Now we're on to something, right? We can like get his brain to buy into that. We need his brain to buy in that it's believable, right? Because no one likes to be lied to, including ourselves. We don't like to be told lies that are so outlandish that we know, you know, in that second might give us like a little boost, but it won't stick. We need like phrases and and cue words and thoughts that are going to be believable. Just like when a coach, again, kind of talks to you, they know what to say um, because they know you, right? And they know what you're capable of. And so definitely the self-talk, when I'm, I'm really focusing on self-talk here as a form of self-help um, because being able to talk to ourselves and, and we do that pretty much all day long in some ways, right? Being able to know when to kind of capture the right phrases at that right time that are believable and focusing and motivating, that's a skill. Like that takes planning because it isn't just gonna pop in your head when you're at the free throw line. You need to like kind of plan that out of what you're gonna say. If, If you're at the line and you need to make both shots and there's one second left on the clock, right? You need to have the ability to move into a comfortable state very quickly. So one of the players I worked with last year, I was so proud of him because he, um, he was a G league guy, but he, and he kind of went back and forth, but he used the breathing and we were able to kind of tinker with it so that he started breathing as soon 
as he knew he was going to the line. He didn't wait till he got to the line, right? As soon as he knew the foul was called, then he would start to slow his breathing. And by the time he got to the line, he was in a good spot. And sometimes even just that small adjustment can make the difference, right? In your level of confidence of like, okay, I got this. Yeah, yeah. And I was also going to add too with the breathing. It's funny that you brought up that because I saw there was a, um, a study done. I don't remember the, the name, but there was a difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of players that go to the line, I see this like almost nine times out of 10. Every person that comes to the line, like they'll wait, they'll look at the rim, they'll take a big breath in with their nose and then out with their mouth and then they'll shoot the free throw. And I know, mm-hmm. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, that kind of helps with the um, parasympathetic nervous system, right? It kind of calms them down because the crowd is all wild, it's a fast paced game. And it kind of mm-hmm. slows themselves down so they can focus on, you know, the, the shot that they're about to take. So um, yeah. I don't know, is there like a major difference between like breathing in through your mouth and or breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth or vice versa? Yes. Just breathing in general is, is beneficial. No, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, breathing itself is, is really a whole podcast. Like I think there's so much information about breathing and the use of the types of breathing and the forms of breathing to achieve the the goals that you want to accomplish. And so when we're talking about needing to dial down or engage that parasympathetic nervous system, you want to be able to engage your diaphragm. And so one of the best ways to do that is to use your nose for the inhale, because you have to take a deeper breath. Your nostrils have smaller surface area and you're going to have to breathe deeper with your mouth. You can cheat and take kind of a half a breath or not a full breath. So when you breathe in through the nose, you're going to take a fuller breath, hopefully, and engage that diaphragm. The diaphragm sits on the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve activates that parasympathetic nervous system. Like I got this right. Like not, not life or death, right? I know what I'm doing. And as you said, some players, that's part of their shooting routine at the line. So they, you know, they'll bounce three times. They'll spin the ball. They'll hold it, then they'll take the breath in and out, right? That's part of their routine. Typically one breath at the line isn't going to be enough to actually engage that vagus nerve to slow things down, right? So if they're nervous about the shot, I would advise they start breathing as soon as the the foul is called so that they can really get like two, three, four good breaths before stepping up. But the breath itself may be part of the, the pre-shot routine, which I do encourage, like, you know, for an automated closed skill, like a free throw, right? Where it's, it's just routine. It's like, you know, you don't want to be in your head. You don't want to be overthinking. It. You just want to let your body do what it knows to do. Right. And for some athletes, when you slow down and you are having to like think, that's where they get themselves in trouble. They're much better when things are fast moving and dynamic and in action, they don't have time to think. So being able to, you know, read and react and and respond. I mean, that was my whole dissertation topic, which is a whole nother thing, but I was very interested in, in high level athletes who are really good at performing under pressure in high paced environments. And you know, kind of this impulsivity of not necessarily thinking through the consequences, just going for things like 
firemen who run into a burning building. They're not thinking about, oh, am I going to get hurt? Is this going to happen? They just go. Um, but when you slow down, sometimes <laughs> that gives you time to think like, oh, this could go badly or, oh, I, I might miss this, right? Yeah. So we do want a routine to kind of keep you from, from overthinking. Um, but back to the breathing. So nasal breathing, I encourage diaphragmatic breathing for arousal control. If we're trying to decrease anxiety, decrease arousal in through the nose, out through the mouth, the exhale wants, you want it to be longer than the inhale, typically twice as long in order to really get that parasympathetic system going. So I, I typically teach in for four out for eight or in for three out for six, you know, around that. I mean, you don't have to be exactly, but about twice as long you want the exhale to be to get the results of truly calming your system. I'm sure you've heard of Wim Hof breathing and kind of the activating breathing and there's box breathing, which the, you know, the seals would practice in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. And that's more grounding and kind of centering. So, um, awesome breathing is an app that I recommend because it gives bunch of different breathing practices and then breathe to relax is another app. And it gives a nice like, um, counter. So it will help you with the inhales and exhales. Cause it has kind of a thing that moves up and down and it has like rainforest sounds in the background and, you know, nice calming things. And it gives instructions. Cause again, as you're learning these things, you want to be guided, you want to be taught. Uh, so much of the world now is self-taught YouTube videos, just watch on the video and do it. But it's really nice to have someone or a specific voice to kind of guide you through if you're learning for the first time. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's so interesting. Just breathing in general can help with so many things. But back to the routines that I were talking about, you know, dribble the ball three times, spin the ball, whatever the case may be. And, you know, um, what is like the benefit of routines? Because there's a couple, I think there's a lot of athletes that have a specific routine. I don't know if you've seen, but um, um, Rafael Nadar, the tennis player, Spanish mm -hmm. tennis player, every time- Nadal? Yeah, Nadal, yeah, my bad. Okay. Nadal. Every time he sits down, like he faces the water bottles towards the court. Like he puts them in a specific way, no matter what. Like every match, that's what he does. And he has so much concentration in that. Like Usain Bolt, he always does his like famous, you know, pose before he does the run michael phelps like he always listens to listens to music before he swam it was like a, a ski player that like she'll lay on her back with her feet up and like cover herself in like a tarp or something and then just put music on and then that was like her way to get ready for a game like why are these certain routines like helpful for so many athletes like it may seem like so weird to us but to them it's like necessary like okay don't touch my water bottles like i need them a certain way or you know they need to do these um rituals basically to get them pop up for the game like is it based off like a childhood thing that kind of progressed till now or is it something that they caught along the way like I always thought routines are just so interesting hmm. yeah I mean I think routines are helpful for everyone if you think about you know as a kid hopefully there was some kind of bedtime routine right where a parent or grandparent or a babysitter whoever was in charge of you was like okay it's time for bed right like Let's try winding down. Let's go brush your teeth, right? Because we get conditioned to expect then what's next. And when we have a routine uh, in the morning, in the evening, pre-shot, pre-game, 
we start expecting what's next, which is I'm actually going to get in the bed and fall asleep, right? If I do something different every single night and one night I'm up till one in the morning, one night I'm up till, you know, 11, one night I'm up till three, the body's like, I don't know what's about to happen. I have no idea, right? Like I might sleep. I might not. I might party. I might, you know, watch YouTube. I might uh, read. There are a whole bunch of things that could happen. And if I get in bed and I do the same thing, like sometimes I, you know, uh, read, sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I watch TV, I'm not conditioning getting in the bed with falling asleep and same thing at a free throw line or pregame or, you know, pre-serve or whatever an athlete's about to do. You're conditioning your brain and body to, to expect this is what's about to come and this is how it's going to go. And when we think about decisions, right? Should I do this or this, this or this? It takes energy to make a decision. Like, do I wanna, you know, toss it high or should I spin the ball? Should I maybe dribble four times today? I'm taking mental energy to make that decision. And I only have so much capacity for, you know, energy related to my mental power in a day. So if I can routinize several aspects of my day, I free up that energy for really important decisions and for other things that I need it for, right? Like if we go into overtime, for example, I've got more energy because I didn't burn it trying to decide if I should dribble the ball three times or four. So uh, I do want to comment on superstitions because I'm not a fan of those. I think that if it's not in your direct control, it's pretty tricky, right? Like, oh, I have to, you know, put the purple socks on underneath the white socks and I've got to put the left on before the right. If that's in your control and you always have the purple socks and you always have the white socks, then okay. Uh, But if something goes off, right, and the purple socks got put in the you know, the hot water. Now, I don't know, something happened, right? Like this is a stupid example, but you know what I'm saying? Um, now you're, you might really like have some anxiety because it's not exactly how you need it to be. Right. And I saw this all the time. I know when the jets went deep into the playoffs, you know, one of our coaches, he didn't change his sweatshirt. Like it was like the sweatshirt had to be on. Right. Uh-huh. and um, had to have the same breakfast every day, no matter what, because that is where they're attributing the power. Like the more high stakes, the less control you feel. But I don't love that as sports psychologist. I want you to attribute the power to you, like in your talent, your effort, and, and what you guys are doing as opposed to your sweatshirt. So there's superstitions and then there's routines and rituals, right? Of like how you want to get yourself into a good mind space or good head space or save energy uh, because this routine works. I don't know. Does that help? I I hope that answers your question. You know, it did. It does. Yeah. It went in depth because I I always find it fascinating, like, because especially with the superstition, because I always thought like, okay, I got to put my left foot, my left shoe before my right shoe or, you know, you you know, I always got to stay, huh? You did this when you were competing, yeah. left yeah. and right shoe. Yeah, I had oh. to, yeah, I did. You know, certain. You know, I, I always felt comfortable pointing left for the right, no matter what. And so, um, yeah. even like I don't know, even with uh, with driving or even listening to music, like if I'm going to work, like 
I need to listen to like R and B music. Like I can't listen to too much like rap. I, I don't know what it is like um, to distinguish between like a superstition because like you said, like say for instance, you know, you accidentally put the right on before the left. It's like oh no, you know, the world's gonna end type of thing. So you know, putting that kind of um, um, extra not not spin, but kind of different approach to it. Like okay, there's superstitions. There's rituals and then there's routines like they help you, you know, keep going and get you like in a state of flow and everything. And so, um, but uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I, I hated when I became part of the superstitious thinking of a team like, oh, she's with us. And it was like, meaning if they lost and I was with them, I was part of the bad luck, right? Like, or, you know, yeah. some people would think like, oh, if I leave the arena and I go in the back and then they start playing better, that means that it's because I, you know, I'm now hidden in a closet or something. Right, right. And fans can take that on too, right? Like fans definitely have superstitions around their teams. And, you know, the less control you feel, the more you gravitate towards superstitions because it feels like a way to gain control. And I get it. I know that happens and I know it's part of sports, especially baseball. So, you know, baseball is one of the, I think, um, sports most known for, for superstitious behaviors because they're at bats, right. Are like the percentage is, is probably one of the lowest of success. And, um, you, you know, you want to understand kind of what your brain's doing. So then you have options because, the, the fewer options, the, I think the worse you are, as far as your sense of agency, mm. the more options you have, then you have more of a sense of control. So having routines, uh, beginners, you know, if you think about when you first started to drive, right, like you would have to think about putting the keys in the ignition. You'd have to think about putting it in gear and now you just do it. It just is something you do without thought. So Think about like how much energy that took to have to think about every step of getting in a car. We want to move to that place in sports where we, you know, routinize, automatize that process so that you're not thinking about it. However, if things go badly, like we've seen players, right? Like kind of go into a slump and they start like really missing shots. I'm talking about basketball now, like missing you know, missing their threes or missing their, their layups or missing their, their free throws. So that's when we have to kind of go back to the basics of like, all right, let's review, right? Like what was helping you to make it? What, what did you change? Something shifted and then be able to work back to making it become more of a a habit or automated. Cause typically when things start to go wrong is when the overthinking starts to, to creep in. Yeah. Cause that reminds me too. I don't know if you remember, but when the Rockets were playing the, the Warriors, I think it was a couple of years ago and they went like over 27 from the three point line that the, the, the um, Rockets did. And they did the odds, like the odds of missing 27 straight threes is like one in like 72,000. Like it was something ridiculous. And so there's like, that affect the whole team. So say like I'm shooting and I'm off, I miss five in a row. I dish it to my friend because now I don't want to shoot. My teammate shoots it, he misses it. He's like, okay, well, he rubbed off on me. I don't want to shoot it. Let me give it to my other teammate. So does that kind of rub <laughs> off on like everybody? Like once you start shooting in a slump, then, then it kind of affects the whole team? Absolutely. I mean, that is the, 
the beauty and curse of being on a team, right? Is that you are affected by those around you. And we have mirror neurons in our brain, meaning that we tend to mirror that of what's going on around us. They did a research study in New York city where I don't know if you've been on the subway platform before, have you ever been on a subway platform? And usually in the subway environment, people are in a rush, right? Like they're hurrying. There's, there's always people running to catch the the train and there's general sense of like stress and apprehension, um, generally speaking. And there's a lot of people too. And they had, um, someone come and stand near a group of people and look at his watch and tap his foot and look at his watch and tap his foot and then like make a deep sigh. And it only took like 30 seconds for this group of people near him to start doing the same thing. Look at the watcher in these days, the phone, tap the foot, sigh, get all stressed out, right? Because it's contagious. How we feel, how we emote, what our energy is, is contagious. And that's why you need like a locker room, you know, hype man, like someone who's gonna like be able to bring up the spirits when things are low and set a different kind of energy into motion. And you also need the guy who's going to like calm things down if it's too frenzied and too negative or too, I don't know, tense. Um, One of my favorite memories is watching um, UCLA. And again, this dates me. It's a long time ago when they were in the national championship game in Seattle. And I think it was Tracy Murray or one of their players had to make two shots to win the game. And that you could feel the tension in the air. Like it was again, one second on the clock. He had to make both shots at the line and his teammate walked over to him and told him a joke, like literally just made him laugh. And Tracy laughed and like, you could see his shoulders just like drop down and swish, swish, right? He made both shots. The same thing happened at the Jets, and I, I will name names this because I this is a, a very comp, a compliment to Santonio Holmes. But you know, Nick Folk was our kicker at the time, and was put into some pretty pressure-filled situations. And Santonio always made sure to go up and high-five him every single time Nick had to go and kick, which you rarely see. You often see in football teams like guys like doing this, you know, covering their eyes, like hoping this kicker makes the, the extra point or, or the field goal. And I, you know, told Santonio that I really appreciated that about him because, you know, that was helpful. It was really, it made the kicker feel like he has my back and I'm with you, right? We got this. And Santonio's like, yeah, I know, like, I know how important it is for the kicker, you know, to be able to feel support and have, have that energy like with him. So we, the, in a team environment, you absolutely feed off each other and, um, it only takes one to kind of start reversing, but that requires someone who's savvy enough to know that the worse, the performance, the more you got to relax. And that is really hard to do because the body reacts to that, right? Like, what do you mean? We can't make these shots. Like we're professionals. What is happening? And now you start like, getting worried about it as opposed to just trying to tell a joke or take, you know, make a light comment or, you know, have some fun with it. And I actually was listening to NPR last night, driving up here to LA and um, 
the woman being interviewed was Catherine Price. And she, I guess, uh, wrote a book, how to break up with your, your phone. <laughs> and then her last book is the power of fun and, um, you know, how to really like incorporate fun into our lives more, especially in this pandemic. And, you know, we've just been under stress for so long as a, as a culture and a, and a world. And when I use the word fun, it's often looked down upon in professional sports because, the stakes are so high and, and there's, you know, a lot of pressure to do well. And when you say the word fun, it's almost like you're not taking it seriously, but I don't know about you, every place I've been where I've enjoyed and had fun where I've worked, I've done better. I, I thrive. I do, you know, better work. I'm more productive. I'm, I just am more in that flow state. And I, I loved listening to her kind of talk about that importance of, not seeing fun as like just for kids or childish or, you know, something that is beneath, you know, a, a certain level yeah. because it really does enhance the experience when you can, you know, when you drive with your teammates, when you're having fun and, you know, even in the bubble, um, you know, I would watch the different teams play and some just really were having fun and, they were enjoying it. They found a way to like, you know, just have fun with this situation, even though it wasn't great. Right. Uh, actually, it was pretty unpleasant for, for a lot of people and, and a tough situation. So that is, you know, something that I actually believe I'd love to kind of come up with a name for that experience that isn't isn't seen as negative. But I, I do think it's important. Going back to like team setting and obviously you work with the Jets um, back at, was it 2008? I was there during the Rex Ryan era. So 2009 through 14. Oh, 14. Okay. And, then and he was there a little longer than me, but yeah. Okay. 2009 to 14. Yeah. And then um, I know you did an a, a interview with, I think his name was Joey Chandler from um, in New Jersey Advanced Media. And then you guys were talking. Yeah, about it was a woman, actually, a woman oh, reporter. Really? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. My fault. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. But um, yeah, I guess she was talking to you about, you know, the Jets struggling season at the beginning. You know, they were, uh, I think, 0 for 6, or they haven't won a game yet. And, you know, um, you kind of praised Zach Wilson. I know Zach Wilson had an injury yesterday, knee injury um, during the scrimmage or a piece in the game. But you were talking about how, like, the uh, tragedy, tragedy, tragedy of them not winning the game for so long is like exactly what they needed because you said that, you know, now we got to go back to score one. We got to figure out what's not working. And so it may be hard, like for the whole team to accept the fact that, you know, we're on this losing streak or like, why, why aren't we getting this? And it could be so frustrating, but you said, you know, we just need to go back to the basics. We just need to figure out like what went wrong. How can we improve that moving forward? And so I found that very interesting because a lot of times people will just say like, oh, well, we're on a six game losing streak. You know, we're not going to make the playoffs. Like might as well just, and then they just soak and kind of, you know, accept the fact. So, you know, what was your advice or how can you, did you help the team kind of like get back on track to, you know, get to where they need, they needed to be? Yeah. I, I don't know that I gave advice to the team in that interview. I was just contacted of like how, <laughs> how the general fanship and, and media could be thinking about what was happening because they were so perplexed and, and dismayed by what was happening. 
that I was just trying to give some perspective on what is an upside for starting off a season in, in such a, um, with the, you know, the loss column being heavier, right. (laughs) Where they, they were really struggling to, to get a win. And I do think that resiliency and being able to deal with adversity actually builds confidence and it keeps you hungry. A lot of times when athletes or teams have too much success too soon, or everything goes super smoothly, they don't learn how to critically think about what they're doing and they just roll with it. So they are sloppy. They don't actually, you know, give attention to detail and to the little things that are probably going to make the difference should they, you know, come neck and neck with an, an opponent who's their wor- worthy ad- like adversary, right? If they're up against somebody who's their equal, those details matter. So being able, you know, I just, just listened to kind of the head coach and what he was saying and Zach would repeat what he was saying. And I felt like that was a good sign that the players were bought into the message of the coach because, you know, I mentioned um, this international conference I went to, and I just want to share a couple of things from um, this resiliency session that I attended because I thought they were so brilliant. But one of them was the cultures that are relational over outcome are going to succeed and be more resilient. Meaning that if you care more about the relations you have with your teammates and your coaches, and that feels strong, the wins will come, you know? And even if they don't, you're gonna have a better experience. If you're only focused on the wins and losses, you're in for a pretty rough, rough go. Um, And I know sports value wins a lot. So I'm not diminishing the need to win and, you know, the the reality that it's a, it's a business, but the relational piece is, is important. And, um, the fact of you're going to make mistakes and we're going to have losses and we're just going to keep fighting and we're going to keep battling. Wow. You know, like that's a kind of motivational message, right. And being able to be a player in that locker room where your coach is basically saying like, guys, we're, we're on the right track, right? Like, just let's stay with it. Um, and creating space for mistakes and and creating that ability to, um, I don't know, just value the people and, and recognize, um, the process and trust the process. I think all those things were positive to me. Obviously the jets, I don't think ended up having (laughs) some great season. I think they, you know, they did okay, but overall, I feel like you, you do want to evaluate the process and not just the outcome. The outcome. Yeah. Um, and that goes to, I remember I watched a video, it was a motivational video too. Um, I forget who said it. It was like multiple people too. But they were saying the same thing, like focus on like the process of you getting to where you need to be and not just the outcome. Like if I want to, you know, um, say like with this podcast, I want it to be like number one podcast like all over the world. Like it's going to be the best hands down no matter what. And if I keep having that outcome in my head, then it's kind of like, oh, well, why aren't I there yet? Like, I need to be there. And a lot of people kind of get that, not delusional, but they kind of overthink and say like, okay, well, I said it was going to be this, I needed to be this. But it's the process of you getting along the way to get to like that number one spot or be the best basketball player, be the best football player, 
you know, top 10, whatever. It's that whole process. Like, even with Kobe, like, he struggled, you know, when he was 18, airballed a couple game-winning shots, whatever. But that whole process of him, you know, struggling, getting better, being one of the top players, like, in NBA history, it's like you need that process. You need that, those ups and downs to kind of help you, you know, become who you are um, in the future. So Yeah, and, and dealing, again, dealing with adversity – builds resilience and confidence because you know you've been through some things and you've kept fighting. So another thing is really evaluating effort and attitude. You know, what is the attitude of the members in the locker room and the coaching staff and the the support staff? How do you stay positive during that? That is tough. It's it's especially in football where there's so few games, right? Like every game matters a lot. And it's a huge blow, you know, to have week after week where you don't have quote success, but in quotes, right. But if you only measure success with the outcome, you are going to set yourself up for some pretty dark nights. Right. And can you get the team to buy into other measures of success? Like you, we care about each other. We, you know, are getting, we're improving in this area in our run game and our passing game and, you know, defense and yards allowed, like how else are we going to measure success and be able to reward that, you know, along the way. And, and even if, you know, guys have good effort, like they really gave it their all fans see that fans do appreciate that and see that guys keep fighting. I mean, sometimes you just want to stop the fight. Let's be honest. Like it just gets ugly. Right. And you're like, Whoa, this is, this is rough. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, part of them being out there and and putting themselves, you know, in some ways on display, right. For people to watch them have a bad day. Most of us don't have 80,000 people watching us have a bad day. So I give them a lot of credit for just having the courage to be out there and, and trying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, last question, very last question. Um, I know this has been like, I guess, a not an ongoing, but it's been touched upon in like that psychology world, but a uh, clutch being clutch in you know, game time decisions or, uh, you know, being able to perform at the highest level and being able to execute, you know, when, it, when, it, when it really matters, is there such thing as like a quote unquote clutch gene, or is it just the, the way that I know they're just programmed? You know, we have Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, like really good clutch finishers. Why do some people like kind of fold under that pressure or they're not able to, you know, make the last shot or make the smart decision play to win the football game or, you know, whatever the case may be. Is there such thing as a clutch gene or is there a way to like improve, you know, being able to execute in high level or in in high stakes games? Or is it just, you know, depending on how they're, they're wired, how they're born? Yeah. I mean, when you think about Kobe and Michael and just, you know, I know you mentioned in that last podcast, watching the last dance, right. And, and all the behind the scenes things that a lot of people didn't realize or appreciate in terms of the amount of effort and energy and hours and dedication that those two individuals put into their craft and their sport to say that, you know, that you're surprised they are clutch, right? I mean, in some ways, that is what you need to ensure that ability that when it matters the most. So if we think about why sports psychology exists, 
It's to be able to perform at your best when it matters the most, right? People can do all kinds of things under no pressure and people can do all kinds of things once, but can they do it night after night consistently at a high level, right? Under pressure when it matters the most, when the game's on the line and you know, I don't know of any gene, so I, I don't know of that research. If there is research about a clutch gene, I have not heard of that. I'll have to do my own research to oh, see. That, if, yeah, that's what they call the clutch gene. Like the clutch gene. Yeah, why is it that this athlete can you know perform oh. at the highest level? They just termed it. As yeah. Gene. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think DNA can be transformed, right? As we as we live, our DNA can change and. And, um, you know, I had some coaches tell me that they believe that, you know, certain puppies bite, right? Like when puppies, there's just some puppies that are going to bite and they're going to be those like aggressive dogs that just kind of get in the fight and, and enjoy the fight and like the fight. And some puppies, that's just not their temperament. And you, no matter what you do, you can't train that. You can't train, you know, a, a kind of introverted, shy person to be, you know, super outgoing. I mean, in psychology, there would be a debate, right? About like how much can you change someone's temperament or abilities or skill set? I mean, I will never dunk a basketball without a trampoline. Like I, you know, I just can't, right? I'm too short. I don't have the the hops. I don't, I don't have that ability. I can do, you know, back handsprings and back flips on a balance beam at one point, but could never dunk a ball. Um, that being said, you know, when you think about the mental space and how we can train our brain to be able to focus and like all the things we talked about control the arousal and believe in ourselves and have confidence, um, there's a lot of possibilities. So I think for any athlete who wants to be clutch, the, the key aspect here is work for it, you know, work to put yourself in that best possible scenario where you believe and you're focused and you're ready and you're energized and you're, you know, feeling that flow state, right. Of being able to get it done. And you're not focused on letting someone down, screwing up. What if I don't, what if I can't, you know, oh my gosh, everyone's needing me to make this shot. Right. So there's, there's certainly options for training that capability. But I think there are some athletes that, you know, are, are supported, you know, in their, their lives. They had a lot of support. They had a lot of encouragement. They had uh, a lot of people who saw things in them. And that certainly does help, right. To believe in yourself. If you had a lot of people believing in you and that is kind of, I don't know, when you're really gifted at something that tends to be more of your experience, right? Is that a lot of people see something in you and believe in you, but we also have athletes who are super talented and don't believe in themselves. They, they don't, they don't want the ball at the buzzer. Um, and they, they have other roles to play on the team, right? They have other things they can contribute. I think it's more about, you know, knowing, that that's what you want to be. That's who you'd like to be is that clutch guy and then embracing a moment and, and, you know, 
seeing how that goes. I don't know if that answers your question. It's yeah. a really good one. Yeah, yeah, because I was only always interested, like, why is it that some players can perform, you know, at that level, and why some people kind of like fold under pressure, and it's like, oh, they turn over the ball, or they airball the, the, the free throw, airball the shot, whatever. Like, why is it that some people just get it, like, give me the ball, I'll, I got this, I'll take this to win the game. Like, why do some players have that type of confidence to kind of do that, and then some players are like, nah, I don't want to shoot it, go ahead, I'll give it to somebody else, type of thing, so. I mean, I always found it interesting, too. Uh, I want to do more research research on it, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to your point, there's there's a lot of layers to it. It's yeah. it's nature, it's nurture, it's personality, it's temperament, it's skill set, it's training. And all those things have to kind of come together, right? And, and be in sync. And, you know, I think some coaches see things in, in certain athletes that they want to make them that, but that athlete also kind of has to want that, right? Like not everyone wants the spotlight or wants, wants that responsibility. Uh, and others do, they're just natural leaders. They're, they naturally lean in to that situation. Um, and they, you know, they want to be in that, in that position. I mean, Tom Brady's another good example, right? Like he's, he's really shown us, you know, and kind of demonstrated over the years just, but he's worked for it. He's, he's worked at it. He's, you know, relentless when it comes to that pursuit of being able to know exactly what to do when the pressure's on and it matters the most and the chips are down. Yeah. So, um, in sports psychology, we would definitely say like the more that you can create those scenarios and have success in them in practice, you're going to have a better chance in real time. Yeah. My favorite quote by him too, him and, um, um, he was talking, he was doing an interview and they asked him like, Oh, what's your favorite ring? Like what ring is your favorite? And he was like, Oh, the next one. Like he always had that mentality of saying like, my next ring is going to be my favorite one. You know, so just having that mindset. But even, like, his worth ethic is just insane. Same with, like, a lot of other athletes. Like, their training regimen is just insane. Um, but Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, I, I feel this is why you have this podcast, right? Because there's so much to talk about and so many interesting, fascinating aspects to competition and performance under pressure and training the mind and body. And I, I just love talking about it. I love thinking about it, studying it, learning it, um, experiencing it. I, I really appreciate all the opportunities I've had over the years to work with, uh, with athletes and with teams and, and just the privilege that it is to be able to be on this journey, you know, for however long it is with, with them, because I, you know, it's inspiring, I, I guess, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's very inspiring and, I think we definitely need more of that. Yeah, no, definitely. That's another reason why I made this podcast because I find it interesting whether it's, you know, how to train athletes for a game, like what are the certain mechanics, mentally, mental capacity, you know, psychology and stuff like that, how that plays a role in, you know, um, um, performance and even just like getting into physical therapy school or like whatever school that's uh, related to the kinesiology field. So all that just it is amazing to me just even like break it down to how you should even how, how you should work out like if you want to dunk you know working 
out your legs in a certain range, like squats, you don't have to go all the way down. Cause like when you dunk, you're not squatting all the way down and exploding all the way up for you working in a certain amount of range. So even like those small details and like those small things I found like fascinating. So um, I could talk to, I could talk about it for, for hours. That's another reason why I made this podcast just to find, you know, people that are at their best in their careers um, sports wise and just let them just, you know, fill my cup with knowledge of whatever they have. So. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fantastic. And I really appreciate the integration, right. Of, you know, my work with the physical therapists and the sports and or, uh, strength and conditioning staff and the coaches. I mean, I think the more that we can integrate training and training philosophies and, um, you know, being able to kind of see the holistic piece, right. Of, of any player or team, because it all kind of needs to come together. Uh, that to me is, you know, the, the goal is to find kind of this human performance model that coexists in all these different spaces, but there's synchronicity and, and uh, kind of chemistry. Yeah. yeah totally. So um, thank you so much for, for having me. And yeah. I know you've been trying to get me to do this for a while. I yeah. really appreciate your patience and and hope that, you know, there was some learning today for, for your audience. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know it's, it's been, I went back to the messages and it was February, February of 2021. I think is when I first sent the message. And then like, I was trying to get you like towards the end of the season. Cause I know you're probably busy, you know, throughout the whole season. So it's hard to get some free time, but um, I'm glad that we're able to do it, you know, before a season started and stuff like that, before the preseason starts and get you to sit down and just talk about, you know, psychology in the sports realm so I really appreciate you taking your time out today and you know talking to us and um just explaining a lot of different things that I had questions for and you know dropping some knowledge every now and then so really really appreciate it really do uh, I just the last bit and I just would love to recommend Mind Gym I don't know if you're familiar with that book but um that's one of my favorites for sports psychology um just kind of a very simple but um powerful book uh by Gary Mack that's one of my my favorites just as a uh, references. I love when people give reading recommendations, if you are interested in, you know, learning more about this field. Um, and certainly, you know, I talked to, to undergraduate classes a lot and um, at San Diego State, because I did my master's there. And a lot of students have a lot of questions about, you know, this field and how to get into it. And I really recommend that you find somebody, you know, to mentor you and, and be able to guide you because it is a, a unique journey. And, you know, I, as a gymnast working with, you know, national football league, it's kind of interesting, you know, to see my path. Um, I never would have imagined that. And, you know, then NBA and, and some NHL stuff and, and different sports, you know, lacrosse and soccer and tennis and, and swimming. Um, because once you know these principles and you really are trained in them, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, the general applicability. Um, so I encourage anyone out there who, you know, is interested in studying this or learning more about it to, uh, to reach out, you know, to a faculty member or uh, someone in your local community to just get some guidance and, um, you know, be able to learn more about, about this field. Yeah, no, I recently got a, a, a psychology book too, it's called The Champion Mind. Um, oh yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, so I just yep. read this book the other day and I've been reading it. So, so far it's interesting. Um, I, I love to read too. So I'm more of like a motivational self-help 
personally, I don't know if you can see kind of my book stack right there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm starting to venture out into like more, I even have like a book about basketball strength and conditioning, like how you should go about your strength and conditioning for basketball players. And so I'm trying to venture out more towards that, trying to, you know, kind of expand my knowledge. But I mean, I would definitely look into, you said Gary Mack, right? The, yeah, Gary Mack, uh, Mind Gym. Mind Gym? Mm. Mind Gym, yeah, but that's a good one too. Champions Mind is great. There's a, there's a lot of good books out there, podcasts, um, obviously yours and you know, I, I feel like um, we've come a long way in this field, but we still have a long way to go, especially as it relates to mental health. We talk mostly about performance today, but I also think, you know, continuing to destigmatize mental health in high performance spaces and recognize that, you know, there, no matter what you're capable of physically, your brain is still human and, you know, you, you are uh, allowed to you know, be vulnerable or need some safety around, you know, your mental health needs. So I just hope maybe that can be another conversation, um, at some other point, but, you know, just want to put that last, last bit out there about just how valuable this, you know, area can be for the, the spectrum of issues that an athlete might have. Yeah. Thank you so much for dropping all that knowledge. Um, Definitely appreciate it. And again, thank you for taking your time out for today. I know we said like about an hour. It's been like an hour and a half. It went by. Yeah, it went by. Yeah, it did. Yeah, I also meant to ask too, I don't know like if it's a possibility, but I've been trying to get in contact with like the athletic trainer for the Clippers or even like the nutrition, nutritionist for the Clippers too. I need to get a nutritionist on this channel. Um, and I don't know if you have their contact or if they're able or willing to do something like this, but, uh, I would love to, you know, continue to work within the, or interview people within the organization to kind of get different aspects of different things and how it all correlates together to help, you know, be cohesive to help a team out. So, um, I don't know if you have that kind of pull or what may have you, but I would love to get in contact with them. Okay. I'll definitely, um, see what I can do. And I doubt, I agree, you know, the athletic trainers and physical therapists and dietitians, uh, all have such an important role in the space. And, um, you know, even with mental health, again, the physical well being and then the nutritional, um, habits of athletes, you know, certainly is, is so important. So sounds like a plan. Okay. Sounds good. Again, All right. Nice to meet you, Ziggy. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Hopefully we can see each other in person sometime throughout the season, maybe see each other at a basketball game or what have you. Um, but yeah, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you soon and I'll send you. Sounds great. Like that for, for this reporting. And everything. Okay. Sounds, good. Sounds great. Good All right. Day. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.